couple of verses that most of us know we really like, but there's some things in scripture that might surprise you. Uh, and so we like to just study books beginning to end. The second reason we do it, if I'm being transparent, is I'm just not creative enough to make up sermons every week. Uh, and so it just tells me what I'm preaching next. But we're in the midst of a series through the book of John, a series that we've entitled That You Might Believe. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 and looking through verse 29. Now, before we stand to read it, let me offer an explanation. Some of you might be looking at your Bibles and saying, well, you skipped the whole first section of chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I did, uh, and I'm going to give you the reason why. Uh, there's debate in Scripture, or debate among scholars as to whether this story of Jesus encountering the adulterous woman, and we love that story, right? Let him without sin cast the first stone. There's debate as to whether or not um, it was in the Gospel of John as we see it here. Some of your Bibles might even have a little note that says the early manuscripts do not include these verses. So I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot of what I think about it. And I am going to preach it, just not this morning. Um, I do think that it is inspired by God. I think it was written by the Apostle John. I just don't think it was written in the Gospel of John. And I think what they were trying to do was find a place to put it in the Gospel of John. And it makes sense, right? Because if you remember last week, the Pharisees were talking with their servants. They're having a conversation about Jesus. And in the text, we'll see Jesus is in front of the Pharisees again. And so we don't really know how he got there. And so this story kind of became a natural bridge to bring Jesus back into the proximity of the Pharisees. Um, I just don't think it fits in the story right here. Again, I do think it's inspired. I think God wants us to read it. I just don't think it belongs right here. So we're, we're going to cover that text. Because if you remember, we're studying the book of John and seeing that John's writing in, in festival cycles. So he's centering Jesus's ministry around specific festivals. We'll pick up the story of the adulterous woman after we finish this festival cycle where we're looking at the festival of shelters. Does that make sense? All right, we'll explain it more. I do think it is scripture though. Um, you know, Bruce Metzger, a theologian says, it has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And I like how I heard one pastor say it once. He said, it just seems like something Jesus would do as he engages with that adulterous woman. So we are going to cover that. We're going to cover it in a few weeks when we get kind of towards the end of chapter 10, around verse 11. But we're going to pick up John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, read through verse 29. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to read this whole thing. John records this. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me, even in your law. It's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you, if you knew me, you would also know my father. 
And he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, then he said to them, again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of the world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I will always do what pleases him. This morning, I want us to just consider for a few moments this idea before it's too late before it's too late. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And we have a big chunk of text this morning, and I'm going to try to simplify it down for us. But as I was thinking about our text this week, specifically the hard truth that Jesus proclaims there in verse 21, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then again, the haunting declaration in verse 24, therefore I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This idea kind of just coming to my mind that we ought to believe in Jesus before it's too late. Because even this concept, right, of before it's too late, it's one that's familiar to us. It captivates our imagination and it keeps our intrigue, doesn't it? I'll prove it to you. Since you're not talking back, I'll talk to you. Think about it with me. How many of the movies that you love have this concept of before it's too late in them. So I love a good action movie. I don't know about you. I love a good action movie. And I was thinking about it, right? How many of the action movies that we love build the climax of the story around this idea of before it's too late, right? There's always this bomb that has to be diffused in the movies, right? And the tension's created because the bomb's counting down and without fail, right as the bomb strikes one second left, they, they cut the right wire, they show up just in time and they save the day. It's never like 16 seconds. Have you noticed that? Like it's never like, oh, we diffused the bomb. We had eight minutes to spare. It's always one second. And the reason, reason for this is this because it's too late creates this sense of urgency in the drama, Right? Or in our action movies, there's this person to be rescued facing imminent death. And at the very last second, the hero saves the day without a moment to spare. But I want to be equal in my treatment. It's not just action movies. It's also some of the love stories we like to watch in movies. 
Right? Without fail, there's this climactic point in the story where someone is about to get on a plane and fly away from their potential love or they're about to take this job across the country. Something is about to happen that will separate these individuals who have this blossoming love for one another. And at the very last second, one of the individuals comes to the other to preserve this love. We're drawn to, right? We resonate with this idea of before it's too late. Again, one of the reasons we're drawn to this One of the reasons it resonates with us is because it's those before it's too late moments which create this urgency that force us to react to it. We have to make a response, right? When there's no guarantee of tomorrow, right now might be all that you have. And the reason I bring that up is because in our text, we encounter what could rightly be considered a before it's too late moment for the Pharisees. Because in this encounter, we're reminded of the hard but the necessary truth that while Jesus is available to everyone who seeks after him, that availability is limited by time. I'll say it like this. The opportunity to trust in Jesus is not guaranteed tomorrow. So why not trust him today? And just so we're clear, right, this is not just a message for those who have never trusted in Jesus, though it is for you. If you've never trusted in Jesus, I'm glad you're here today, right? I want you to trust in Jesus. My hope is that I'm going to give you three good reasons why you should trust in Jesus today. But this message is also for those of us who have walked with Jesus for a little bit. Because if we're honest, our trust in him wavers as well. You don't have to say amen. I know it's true. Right When the unforeseen moments come, when the hard news is given, when this life just hasn't panned out the way we thought it would when we trusted in Jesus, we too are tempted to abandon this trust in Jesus and try to make it on our own. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that all of us need to be reminded, why not just trust Jesus today? And see, the magnificent thing about our text this morning is that in these verses, John records multiple reasons, three to be exact, that Jesus gives as to why people should believe in him. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I just want to give you those three reasons, and then I'll be in my seat. I'm playing like it's going to be short, but it's not, okay? (laughs) Here's the first reason Jesus gives why we should believe in him. It's because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Look at what he says again in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, a couple things we have to note about this statement. First, this is one of the significant I am statements in the book of John. In the Greek, it's ego and me. Right? Some people say there are seven I am statements. Some people say there are nine. But, but there are these significant I am statements in the gospel of John. We encountered the first one in John 6, 35, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And here he says in 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And the reason these I am statements are significant, specifically in the book of John, is the deep connection in the gospel between Jesus and Israel's time in Egypt through the Exodus. Remember, John is tracking Jesus's ministry. So when you read the Gospel of John, you have to remember this. John is tracking Jesus's ministry theologically, not chronologically. What I mean by that is John's not concerned about the events being in a specific right chronological order. 
That's not how he's organizing his gospel. Matthew organizes his like that. So does Luke. But that's not what John is doing. John's just showing these big theological themes. And we've seen so far that they're centered around these Jewish festivals. So we've already saw Jesus in relation to the Passover. Now we're looking at Jesus in relation to the festival of shelters. So the statements by Jesus, I am, have deep significance for the people of God. Why? Because that's the way God described himself to Moses. Do you remember when Moses encountered God at the burning bush? Right? Moses shows up, says there's this bush that's burning as if it's on fire, but it's not actually burning. And a voice comes out, says, take off your sandals for the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. And as Moses is encountering God, this is what he says through the burning bush. He says, therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they asked me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Better translation of that is I am that which I have always been. And he says, this is what you are say, to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So with each of these I am statements, Jesus is equating himself with God. Right? Listen, that's why you can't buy, buy into these arguments that some want to make that Jesus never actually said he was God. Right? It's riddled throughout the pages of John. It's riddled throughout the pages of Scripture. And make no mistake, the, the people, specifically the religious leaders, knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. That's why we'll see soon in John chapter 10 that the Pharisees attempting to stone Jesus before they're trying to stone him, they confront him and they say this, we aren't stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because being a man, you make yourself God. So they knew what Jesus was claiming. Right? These I am statements. Jesus knows what he's doing, what he's claiming to be. Not merely that Jesus is near God, not merely that Jesus represents God, not merely that Jesus is like God. Jesus is declaring, I am God in flesh. So the very I am statement itself is significant, but Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is also significant in connection to the festival of shelters. Again, which this episode of John is centered around. Stick with me. We got to do some technical work, but I'm going to draw some application out. All right. I know we've talked about the festival of shelters a good deal over the past few sermons, but let me offer a recap and then I'll share some new insights. So the festival of shelters was a festival that the Jewish people participated in that praised God for his provision. The reason it's called the festival of shelters is because part of the festival was that the people literally built huts and lived in them for seven days, these temporary huts that they had constructed. It was meant to remind them of God's provision for his people during the Exodus when the people lived in these huts. There were some significant aspects to this festival as, as well that directed people to remember some very specific aspects of God's deliverance. One aspect, we saw this a few weeks ago, was the water flowing from the temple. Do you remember? Part of the festival was that 
The priest would pour water over the altar. That water would then flow out through the temple. And the water reminded the people of God's provision that had come with water. How God parted the Red Sea and let the Israelites walk across on dry land. How God provided water for them while they were in the midst of the wilderness. Water flowed out of a rock. So what we saw a couple of weeks ago was Jesus declaring in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So essentially what Jesus was revealing in John 7 is that the festival you are celebrating, the water that's part of this ceremony, all of this provision of God that you're remembering, it's all pointing to me. I am the water of God. I am the faithfulness of God. I am the provision of God. Paul goes so far, watch this, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 3, to argue that Jesus was the water they drank in the wilderness. That's what Paul claims in 1 Corinthians 10. So Jesus has already made this claim that, hey, that water, that's really all about me. But another significant aspect of the festival had to do with light. This brings us to Jesus' statement here in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus isn't just picking random analogies. He's using the very rituals of this festival to get the people to see that this is about him. So there was a ritual with the festival of shelters. And what would happen was that each night of the festival, the worshipers would gather together in the court of women, right? which is the outer court of the temple, and they would await the lighting of special lamps. Again, in the court of women, which just happens to be right next to the treasury. So verse 20, he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching at the temple. So the case has been made, and I'm inclined to agree that Jesus is having this discussion of I am the light of the world at the very place where the lighting of the lamps takes place. And so here's what would happen. I'm going to give you kind of a rundown. There were golden candlesticks, and they had four golden bowls on top of them and four ladders to each candlestick. And each evening, four youths of the priestly line would climb the ladders holding jars of oil and holding 20 logs, which they poured into all the the bowls. They would then make wicks from the worn-out garments of the priests and with them set the candlesticks alight. And once they lit those lights, there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that didn't reflect that light. And so in response to the lighting of the candles, the people would dance, they would sing, they would celebrate. And here's specifically what they were celebrating. It was specifically focused on the cloud by day and the fire by night that led the people of God and protected the people of God during the Exodus. But even more, light signified the presence and the glory of God. We read that in Exodus 40 when we think of the tabernacle, right? For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So watch this. What Jesus is claiming is significant. He is saying first, I am the glory of God. Right? Like the weight of that's lost on us. He's saying, I am the glory of God. I am what Elijah longed to experience. I am what Moses asked to see on that mountain. I am the very glory of God in flesh. It's like how John introduces us to Jesus in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. 
As the author of Hebrews expresses, right? Hebrews 1.3, the Son or Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is the glory of God made known. But even more, he's saying by declaring that he is the light, that not only am I the glory of God, but I'm the provision of God. I want you to notice what Jesus says. I am the light. The light. Not a light, not some light, not a new light, but the light. The implication here is that the light that Jesus is, is the light that he has always been. Okay, watch this. I need you to catch this. I need you to kind of grab the weight of this statement this morning. In other words, Jesus has always been the provision of God. It didn't start when he took on flesh. Jesus has always been the light of life spoken of in Psalm 56. Jesus has always been the light of Psalm 37 and 44, which epitomizes God's victory over the traumas in your life. Jesus is the light in Psalm 139 that conquers all darkness. Jesus has always been the light of salvation in Psalm 27 and Isaiah 58. And if that doesn't get you, I'd argue this. Jesus was the light that led them. He was the light in the fire over the tabernacle, the glory of God made visible. Jesus is what he has always been. And so what I'm trying to get you to see is that the Jesus who steps into history is not a Jesus who is just picking up where the father left off. He is a Jesus that has always been the glory of God. He is the Jesus who has always been the provision of God. So I got to try to offer you some encouragement. It can't be all theological this morning based on what I just said. Why that should encourage you is because it reminds us that Jesus has a track record of making a way out of no way. That there are people under the sound of my voice this morning that walked into this place with great needs this morning. You walked in with needs that your resources can't meet. You walked in with needs that your ingenuity can't outsmart. You walked in with needs that demand a provision that no amount of planning can overcome. And what Jesus' declaration is positioned to remind us is that the same God that parts the seas, the same God who makes water flow from rocks in a dry and desert place, the same God that makes manna fall from heaven is the same God working in your life right now. And he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you think or ask this morning. So what I'm trying to tell you is that if you have a need that you can't meet, we have a God with a track record of making a way where there is no way. And that's the God that's working in your life right now. So Jesus declares, most likely in the midst of the lamp lighting ceremony, by the way, I am the light of the world. The ceremony that you are in the midst of is pointing to me. But here's where it gets interesting. Despite the ceremony pointing to Jesus, despite the teaching of Jesus, despite the faithfulness of the people to participate in these festivals and these rituals, many still missed Jesus. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on this point because it's the point that keeps coming up over and over, but I'm going to press in a little, as I always do, and say that the reality that they miss Jesus, despite his teaching, despite the ceremonies, despite the rituals, this truth reminds us something significant, that there is a great danger in doing the religious things without a recognition of what they're all about. It isn't just true for the Pharisees in John 8. It's true for us as well. Like, I'll make it as plain as I can. We don't come to church because it's convenient. 
We come to church because we are the body of Jesus. We don't just read our Bible because it makes us a good Christian. We read our Bible because it's the way we hear the voice of Jesus and we walk in relationship with him. We don't just pray because it's what religious people do. We pray because we believe that Jesus is the sovereign king over all creation and he is the provision of God. Right? I'm going to pick at your pocketbooks. I'm coming for you. Right? We don't just give to get a tax write-off. We give to declare that all things were made by Jesus and all things are for Jesus. Therefore, all that we claim as ours actually belongs to Jesus. And we can get so caught up in the religious stuff that we miss the Jesus that it's all for. And that's precisely where the Pharisees are. They don't believe him. And as a result, they begin to question You see it there in verse 13. So the Pharisee said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. So they're referring to the same law that Nicodemus pointed out that they were ignoring in the chapter before. That you need two or three witnesses before you can convict somebody. You need to hear the evidence. You judge with no partiality. But even Jesus acknowledges that this is true. He's already said in John 5, 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. We see it here in verse 17 in chapter 8 when Jesus says, even in your law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So what Jesus is pointing out is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem's never been the testimony though. Jesus already said in John 5 that John the Baptist, Jesus' works, the scripture themselves, Moses and even God the Father testify to who Jesus is. And he reiterates it again here and says in verse 18, I am the one who testifies about myself and the father sent me who sent me testifies about me. So he's saying the problem is not the testimony. We have the witnesses, but still the Pharisees want evidence. But here's what I want you to see, church. The problem has never been the evidence. Let me say it like this. God has given enough evidence to validate his testimony. Even Romans 1 tells us that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are revealed in creation. The fact that the sun rose again this morning is evidence of who God is. The fact that you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs is evidence of who God is. The fact that God has given us his word and it hasn't failed us once is evidence of who God is. The fact that the tomb is still empty is evidence of who God is. The fact that you and I managed to waddle ourselves in here, despite the weeks some of us had this week, with the questions and the struggle and the doubt, and we're still here, it's evidence of who God is. But the problem comes, as Jesus points out in verse 15, not that there hasn't been evidence and a testimony. The problem is you're judging the evidence and the testimony by a human standard. Again, we see this theme come up that we have seen over and over that Jesus has never asked us to define who the Messiah is and what he should do. Jesus has always been Jesus. Jesus always will be Jesus. And we can either take Jesus as he is, which I might add is better than anything you could come up with anyway, or we don't take him. But you know, I'm actually thankful for this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees because it teaches us something that you and I have to remember. See, even though that God has given evidence There is no amount of evidence that will remove the requirement of faith. Let me say it again. Even though God has given evidence, there is no amount of evidence that will remove the requirement of faith. The author of Hebrews says it like this, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
and the certainty of things not seen. Now, let me come at this from two angles. The truth that there is no amount of evidence that removes the requirement of faith, it's a needed reminder for those of us who have faith. Because it reminds us that even if God showed up the way we wanted sometimes, we would still need faith to trust him. Again, I'm going to give it to you like this. I'll tell on myself. I like to do that. I have prayed. You can judge me if you want. I don't care. But I have prayed in moments where my faith was really weak. A prayer that went something along the lines like this. God, I'm struggling to believe. If you would just speak to me like you spoke to Moses, then I would have the evidence I need. If you would just talk with me like you talked with Elijah, like you walked with David, like you spoke to the prophets, how you met with Job, if you would just meet me like that, then I would have the evidence that I need. But can I tell you, even if God spoke to me like that and provided evidence, I would still need faith. Ask me how I know. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened, the spirit descended like a dove, and the voice of God declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the voice of God rang out, and people still didn't believe. We walk by faith. Not by sight. Faith becomes difficult when we evaluate matters of faith by human standards. But this truth that there's no amount of evidence that removes the requirement of faith is needed not only for those of us who have faith, but it's a needed reminder as we engage those who don't have faith. I love apologetics, right? I love contending for the faith. I love defending the faith. But the reality of this passage is that there's no amount of evidence that you can provide that will remove the requirement of faith from the person you are sharing with. I'm not saying we shouldn't provide evidence. We should because God gave it. I'm simply saying Jesus can't be fully evaluated by earthly standards. At some point, we're just going to have to introduce people to Jesus and ask them, do you believe? And it will require faith. Not a faith devoid of evidence, a faith built on evidence, but a faith that will require an assurance of things hoped for and a certainty of things that have not yet been seen. So Jesus responds to them and says that he and his father testify that Jesus is who he claims to be. And the Pharisees prove his point about judging by earthly standards when they ask in verse 19, where is your father? Because they immediately think he's talking about an earthly father. They don't realize he's talking about God. And so Jesus simply says, and listen, this is cold-blooded. You might not, I mean, the Bible's funny. I'm telling you. Jesus just says, yo, you don't know him. You don't know him. Because if you knew me, you would know the Father. So the first reason that Jesus gives us why we ought to believe is because Jesus is the light of the world. He is the glory of God, and he is the provision of God. And I'll be honest, I spent way too much time on that first point, so I'm going to try to speed through these second ones a little bit. Um, Here's the second reason that Jesus gives as to why we should believe. Before it's too late, because Jesus is going away. Jesus is going away. Look at what he says in verse 21. Then he said to them again, I am going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. With this statement, Jesus is offering another reason again why we should believe. Here it is. He has a purpose in taking on flesh. 
Jesus is aware that his hour is drawing near. Jesus knew when he showed up that he would be crucified and raised from the dead. None of that was new information to him. And so he gives this warning to the leaders that my hour is coming. And when it comes, you will look for me. You will die in your sin because where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus is ultimately saying, I came for a reason. And the reason that I came was to provide a way for humanity through faith and repentance to be made right with the Father and to be seated with me in glory. And what Jesus tells them is more or less, you're running out of time to believe. And once again, they don't understand what he's saying. Because in verse 22, it says, so the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They think he's talking about suicide. That's what they think Jesus is referring to. Because for the Jew, that would be an unforgivable sin. And so to do that meant that your eternal destiny was sealed. And so they took Jesus as saying, oh, you're saying like, you're going to kill yourself, which means you're going to end up punished, but we're going to be in heaven. So yeah, we can't come with you. They missed it. And so Jesus begins to explain in verse 23, he says, you are from below. And he told them, I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that, and he says it again, that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus' statement here is the original statement that spurred the author of Hebrews to write in Hebrews 9, 7, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. So what Jesus is saying is that if you do not believe in me, you will bear the full weight of your sins. Now, listen, church, I know, and I'm just going to say it, I know that's not a popular message today, right? We live in a society that's you do you, I'm going to do me, as long as what you do doesn't bother me and what I do doesn't bother you, everybody can do it. I can't tell you your way's wrong. You can't tell me my way's wrong, right? Everybody gets to do what they want to do. And so this is not a popular message that if you do not believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. It is to face the full weight of God's judgment and wrath. And while that may not be popular, it's the the truth that actually makes the gospel look glorious. That Jesus would be willing to bear the wrath of God and take our punishment on himself if we would simply believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he has done what he said he would do. So the Pharisees, again, they question Jesus in verse 25. Who are you? They asked. And Jesus says exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. One commentator pointed this out, and I thought it was helpful in our theme of before it's too late, is that even in the response of Jesus, you get this implication that time is running out. Because Jesus doesn't answer the question like he has in the past. When they say, who are you? Instead of answering, he says, it's exactly who I've told you I've been. From the beginning. And so what's kind of odd in this text is you see this juxtaposition between the patience of Jesus and the patience of Jesus coming to an end. Now, I want to remind you that God is patient with us. 2 Peter 3, 9, and I believe every word of this, that the Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
But the patience of God does not change the reality that it is destined for a man to die once and then face judgment. Now, I want to be clear. When Jesus says to them, you will die in your sins, he is not damning them to hell when he says that. He's not condemning them. He's giving them uh, another opportunity to believe. He says, for if you do not believe that I am he and that he shouldn't be there in your Bible, right? If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. But I want to point something out. I want to go back to Jesus' statement when he says, where I am going, you cannot come. This reveals something to us. We're reminded that Jesus knew from the very beginning where he was going. I said it a moment ago, I'll say it again. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be raised, but he also knew that he would be glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. We'll see more about that at the end of this chapter. But here's what we have to get. Jesus came for a specific purpose, to provide a way for us to go with him where he is going. He did not come so that he could join you where you want to go. And the reason I point this out is because often people get confused on why they're placing their faith in Jesus. You don't place your faith in Jesus so that you get whatever you want in this life. You don't place your faith in Jesus so that he will be your secret to success in this world. You don't place your faith in Jesus so he can tag along to where you want to go. You place your faith in Jesus so that you too can go where he knows he's going. Because what I believe is that the place that he is preparing for me is better than anything I could have gotten here anyway. So why, why should we believe? Because Jesus is the light of the world, but Jesus is going away, and we want to be with him when he goes. We want to be with him. So Jesus says, you should believe in me because I'm the light of the world. You should believe in me because I'm going away. In other words, there comes a point where it's too late. But here's the final reason he gives. Because Jesus promises his presence. Why should you believe in Jesus? Because Jesus promises to be with you. Let me read these last two verses. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. So what Jesus is communicating is that to the Pharisees is that there will come a time when you know that I am. And once again, he's predicting his death and he says, you will lift up the son of man. He's talking about when they crucify him. And he says, and you will know that I am God. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what he means by that. Is he saying that, hey, when you actually crucify me, then you'll place your faith in me? Like, you'll get it? You'll know that I am God? Or is he saying that when you crucify me, right? Philippians 2, that God will give me the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So is it a picture of their demise? And see, I think that what Jesus is saying, that when you lift me up, this is a Philippians 2 picture. 
That because Jesus was crucified and raised, he has been given the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what Jesus is actually saying there is that, listen, when you raise me up, you will know that I am he, that I am God. And it's not through faith. It's because there is coming a point when your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. The question isn't will people confess. The question is will they confess after it's too late? Because everyone will bow the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, do you do it with him or do you do it condemned by him? But what I want you to actually see is, is kind of hidden there in verse 29. He says, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Now, here's where we get this idea that Jesus promises his presence. Because what Jesus does here is he is declaring that God the Father will never leave me because of my faithfulness to him. Like, God will never abandon me. I think that God never abandons Jesus. I think on the cross, the Father does not turn his face away. I know we made that cute song, right? The Father turns it. We should sing that song. It's a great song, right? But what Jesus is declaring in this moment is that because I am faithful, God will never abandon me. We can get into the theology of Psalm 22 where he says, Jesus cries out what David wrote in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're like, see, God turned away. But the whole point of that Psalm is God coming through. That's the whole point of Psalm 22. I don't think that the Father ever turns his faith away. Gets into a whole host of issues about the Trinity and the separate, all that stuff. But that doesn't matter, okay? Jesus declares that the Father will never leave me because I am faithful. And what we'll see soon in John 14 is Jesus uses this reality, this statement in verse 29, as the ground for declaring that just as the Father will never leave the Son, so too the Son will never leave those who trust in him. Now, I want you to catch a glimpse of the beauty of this statement, and then I'm, I'm putting a pen in it and we're done. What Jesus is declaring is that the promise of Jesus sticking with you is not because you will get everything right. The promise of Jesus sticking with you is not grounded in your perfect worship. The promise of Jesus sticking with you is not rooted in anything that you do. The promise of Jesus' presence remaining with you is not based on your faithfulness at all. The promise of Jesus' presence with those who believe is grounded in his faithfulness because I was faithful to the Father and the Father never abandoned me. If you believe in me, I will be faithful to you, not because you've earned it, not because you're a super Christian, not because you're so great, because I am such a great Savior. I will never leave you. The Son promises to be faithful in the same way that the Father is faithful to him. Again, not because you are faithful, but because he is. And that's amazing. Jesus bases his presence with you on his relationship to the Father. So what that means, brother and sister, so I'm talking to you believers. If you are struggling to believe in the nearness of God, if you are struggling to believe that you will make it to the end, his presence with you is guaranteed despite your uncertainty. His presence is guaranteed despite your hardship. His presence is guaranteed despite your sin because Jesus was obedient to the Father in this life. And Jesus was obedient to the Father in his death. And though he died, he didn't stay dead. And Jesus was faithful to walk out of that tomb. 
And his presence to those who believe is guaranteed, not based on what you think or feel, but based on what Christ has done for you. And so if you are here, brother or sister, rest in that. Like we need that. We could be honest with how many times, Lord, I know you, you're probably so sick of me at this point. I keep asking you to grow me in the same area, and I keep struggling, and I keep failing, and I'm tempted to think that God is angry with me and that God is distant from me. And what this text proclaims is that God is still near to me because his presence with me, the son's presence with me, has never been based on how well I fight sin. It's based on the fact that our Savior walked out of a tomb, having conquered death, sin, and the grave, and he was crucified for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification, and God will stick with me because Jesus was good at being Jesus. But I want to say that if you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to trust in him today. He is the light of the world. He is the proof that God loves you so much because John tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so we've talked about it. It's come up a lot, but let me just give you the gospel that we believe. We believe that our sin separates us from God, that none of us by nature are good people. The Bible says in James 2.10, if you commit one sin, you're guilty of all of it. So you might be like, well, I've only told one law, one lie. That's great. God looks at you. He says, lawbreaker. You commit one, you're guilty of all. And our sin separates us from God. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. We by nature deserve wrath and punishment. But again, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived, but we can't. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He took God's wrath on himself on our behalf. And he was crucified and he was buried. But then he got up from the grave, having conquered sin, death, and hell itself. And he invites us to come to him through faith and repentance by believing that he is who he says he is. He's done what he said he would do. And repentance simply means changing your mind. It's it's believing that God knows what's right and it's running after him. And you will falter and you will fail along the way. You will make mistakes. But the beauty of what Jesus proclaims is he will never leave you and he will never forsake you because he's that faithful. And so I invite you to trust in Jesus today. I, Pastor Mike, Pastor Jesse, Any one of us would be happy to tell you more about what it means to trust in Jesus. But let me end by saying this. Whether a believer or not, when it comes to trusting Jesus, don't wait. Trust in him while you have the chance and see if he doesn't prove himself faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, I just thank you that Jesus is Jesus all by himself. That he doesn't need me to define who he is or what he's done. That he doesn't need me for anything. But that he loves me. And that he was willing... He was willing to die on a cross to save me from my sins. So God, we pray that we would be a people that trust in you. That trust you when it's hard. That trust you... When it's easy, that in every season, in every moment, we would hold fast to you, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.